he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us this word. In particular, this word of encouragement and this word of grace, forgiveness, and restoration. Help us as we meditate on it to grow in faith, to grow in love for you, to grow in our understanding of how much you love and delight in us, and teach us to delight in you in return through these inspired words. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <coughs> Please be seated. Well, I think we're having some microphone problems, uh, but that's okay. If it doesn't get fixed, I'll just, I'll just project. One of the guys, I don't know if they're going to come up here in a minute and change me out, but uh, if not, I'll, I'll try to project, and if you're in the back and you can't hear, if I start talking as if I had a microphone, just give me one of these, and I'll uh, step it up. If I can get the frog out of my throat, that would help. Excuse me. If any of us actually knew how evil we are, uh, how capable we are of the most deeds, on the one hand, we'd be overwhelmed by the seeds of wickedness that linger inside of us even after we're saved. But on the other hand, if we knew how sinful we really are, at least we'd not be so shocked when we miserably fall short of God's glory. And since none of us really knows the depths of our depravity, we tend to be shocked by our sins, by our moral failures, by our moments of intensely weak character. Peter was shocked to, to find himself, uh, in himself, we should say, the ability to deny his Lord three times in one night. We'll just, we'll just do it like this. I don't even want a mic today. Let's, I'm going to practice projecting, so we're good. <clears throat> James will be happy with that. And if Clay were here, he would be happy. They think we should not use microphones at all. Now, when we sin, particularly when we sin in big ways, the enemy knows how to capitalize. The, the devil has schemes that he employs when you and I fall into sin. And he's been practicing these strategies. And his strategy is to convince you that you have forfeited your chance, your ability to live a victorious and joyful Christian life. And so you might as well just keep walking down the path of sin, grasping for whatever happiness you, you might be able to find along the way on that path. That, after all, is what the devil persuaded Judas of. 
after he betrayed Jesus. He convinced Judas that he might as well just keep sinning. And so he led Judas into self-pity and despair. No doubt, the devil tempted Peter in a similar way to, to walk down a similar path. Satan, we know from the words of Jesus, wanted to sift Peter the way that he sifted Judas, like wheat. But Peter resisted the devil. Peter realized, by God's grace, that when we sin, even when we sin big, we don't, we don't forfeit the ability to live a full, joy-filled life in Christ. <clears throat> so the way of the Christian is the way, continually, of repentance and restoration, because we're always sinning and needing restoration and repentance. Confession is the way to that. So yes, Peter, Peter failed. Uh, he, he failed Jesus at the crucial moment, no doubt. He, he abandoned Jesus and showed himself to be a coward, not once or twice, but three times in one night. Yet still, here's the good news. Jesus loved and loves Peter. And, and Peter loves Jesus. He still loves Jesus. Today's passage takes place on the, the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee. In the background is the sea, the rising sun, you know, it's morning. In the foreground, of course, is, is the shore, the rocky beach of, of the Sea of Galilee with, with this glowing charcoal fire that Jesus has started. The key characters, of course, are Jesus and Peter, along with the other six disciples that were in the boat all night with Peter, fishing with him, one of whom was John. We find out later he's, he's right there. He's listening in. He's recording what he, what he heard firsthand. So they're all sitting around the fire together. Maybe they stood up. Maybe Jesus took Peter somewhat off to the side, but it's, it's in the presence of the disciples that this is happening, maybe still just right around the fire. And to understand what happens in these three verses that I read from John 21, and you can turn there, John 21, 15 to 17, we've got to understand some things about Peter's fall, which was caused by excessive self-confidence. Peter's baseless self-assurance manifested itself right after Jesus taught the disciples about love. Remember that he gave them that new commandment, as John calls it. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So, you know, this perhaps got Peter to thinking about how much he loved his Lord, Jesus. Because a few verses later, in, in John 13, after Jesus tells them that, that he's going away, gives them that you know, bad news to them, and the disciples won't be able to follow him, Peter pipes up, Lord, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. In response, Jesus challenged that confessed loyalty. Will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, will not crow, till you have denied me three times. Uh, surely from that point on, Peter likely didn't hear much of what Christ had to say. That, that was devastating. And we certainly don't find Peter asking any more questions as he was before. The, the, the question asking is picked up by, by Philip and Thomas. And we know from the other Gospels that Peter was insistent that the Lord was wrong. He told Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's it. You're wrong. All four Gospels tell us that Peter denied Jesus not once but three times. And while Jesus stood trial, Peter, he waited outside the, the high priest's courtyard where the, where the trial, if we want to call it that, was taking place. And he was declaring and swearing, I'm not his disciple. Another time, I don't know the man. Another time, I don't know what you're talking about. And after Peter denied Jesus those three times, the agony and the guilt immediately began to sink in. And by the time we get to our story today, which took place probably two to three weeks later, it's not far-fetched to think that Peter, full of regret, had been replaying in his mind his failures that night. Don't we all do that? Right after the, the rooster crowed, remember the, the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter locked into that scene? And no doubt, thank you, I do need that. And no doubt this memory that Peter had of, of locking eyes with Jesus right after he denied him three times, this image had resurfaced in Peter's mind more than a few times. I mean, he's, he's human. I don't see any, any way around that. Peter would never be able to forget the awful things he had done. And perhaps he wondered, at least in certain moments, if he could ever recover. Had he fallen too far? Could he ever be what he once was or what Jesus called him to be? Had he disqualified himself from faithful Christian service, from ever being a shepherd of Christ's people? Peter, like you and me, like every believer, was tempted to be defined, to, to define himself by his sin, by his lapse of love. His failure was lodged in his psyche. Maybe you, maybe you wonder if your sin has disqualified you from being of any use for Christ and his kingdom. You, you, maybe you doubt whether you could ever be useful or valuable again. Maybe even in just in your own family, uh, as a leader, as, a, as a, the head of your home, men. Like Peter, you need to be reminded anew that you're defined not by your imperfect love for Christ, but by Christ's perfect love for you. That's at the bottom. 
not your love for Christ. Below that is Christ's perfect love for you. That's your identity. That's how you are defined as a child of God. So your identity isn't based on the purity of your love for Christ. It's based on the purity of Christ's love for you. And so may these words of Christ in this passage today encourage you the way they encouraged Peter, the way they've encouraged me even just this week. Remembering Peter's threefold denial helps us understand the way Jesus approached Peter to restore him to service. Now remember, he's not restoring him to forgiveness. Peter had been forgiven, and surely at some level Peter knew that, experienced it, believed it. But he is restoring him, you know, restoring him to that office, that place of service in his kingdom and in his church. And Jesus asked his three questions. He asked the same question essentially three times. So there are three sections, repetitive sections to this exchange. And each section, each of the three sections, verse 15, 16, and 17, also has three parts within it. First, Christ asks the question. Second, Peter responds with a confession. And then third, Christ gives Peter a command. And as I reread these three verses, notice the three sections and the three parts to each section. Question, response, command. Verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. That's the first section. Verse 16, Jesus said to him again a second time. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Third section, verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him that third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This, this, the setting of this passage continues from the previous scene on the shore of the sea again. And Jesus, remember, had prepared this symbolically significant meal of fish and bread and a charcoal fire. And the last time we saw Peter around a charcoal fire, what was he doing? He was denying Jesus three times, in fact. And so it's fitting then that around this charcoal fire, Peter is given three more opportunities to respond to a question. This time, three opportunities to confess his love, his loyalty to Christ. Of course, the context is completely different. This time, the three questions are not asked by an accuser, They're asked by the one who himself was the foremost accused. And Jesus' questions don't seek to take life, to to trap and then take life. They seek to restore life. In fact, the one asking the questions this time has already laid down his life to 
purchased peace. Now, some of you are aware, probably many of you, of the the most well-known difficulty, and if we want to call it difficulty, question in this passage, uh, maybe the most well-known question in John's gospel. Uh, And it's the use of the different words for love in this passage. In English, it, it doesn't come through. But in the Greek, there are two different words for love being used here. There's six instances of that verb love. And the two, the two verbs being used here are agapao. The, the noun of that is agape, agapao, and then phileo. Okay? And so phileo is used four times. Agapao is used two times. And in the first two questions, Jesus uses agapao, do you agapao me? And Peter responds each time in those first two sections with, yeah, of course I do, and he uses phileo. But in the third question, Jesus and Peter both use phileo. Okay, so you see four times phileo, two times agape. Peter never uses agape. Jesus uses it twice. The last one, they use the same verb. So the question is, is this, is this alternation of, of love verbs important to the story? Is, is John teaching us something here? And no doubt John's use of two different words have, have stirred the imaginations of a lot of preachers. Uh, and, and some of you have probably heard uh, popular Bible teachers say that this alternation of Greek words, words for love is significant. But... There, there really isn't any deep significance to this. Uh, there's no intended different difference in the meaning. Uh, the two verbs, agapao and phileo, mean virtually the same exact thing when you look at how they're used. Uh, and, and really, probably the, the main, if not the only thing going on here is, is John doesn't want to use the same word for love six times in a row. So he changes it up a bit. This is a common practice in the New Testament in all kinds of literature and all kinds of writing. And so it's it's popular to find important distinctions between these two words. And uh, maybe maybe C.S. Lewis's book on the four loves, which which is a wonderful book, might indirectly uh, contribute to, to this confusion. But when you look at how agapao and phileo are used in Greek literature, at the, at the broadest level, in, in classical Greek, in the Greek Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in John's Gospel even, what you find is that these words are used interchangeably, and there's no dis- discernible distinction between them. It's also important to remember that Jesus said what he said here to Peter, almost certainly in Aramaic, right, a different language, so John is translating, and, uh, and, and in his translation of what happened, um, and maybe even, you know, maybe he's even condensing it a bit, um, he decides to use these two different words for love. And that's for, really for stylistic reasons. That's the only thing we can you know, be, be certain about, is that there's some stylistic considerations going on here. And Jesus does a similar thing not exactly the same. There's a similar thing going on uh, with each of Christ's commands to 
to Peter, the first time Jesus says, feed my lambs, second time, tend my sheep, you know, lambs and sheep, very synonymous there, even feed and tend, and then the third time, feed my sheep. Uh, and in this case, Jesus himself might have likely, likely used different Aramaic words that meant sheep, lamb, feed, and tend. Um, and, and even then, though, his main point perhaps would have been just variation uh, in, in linguistically. And so we need to be careful when we see authors in Scripture using different words that we don't read too much into it. You know, based on what we might, uh, you know, even if we look it up in a, in a lexicon, in a dictionary, that can be misleading too because uh, sometimes the authors just do what other authors do. Inspired by God's Spirit, they use some variation in, in the way they, they record these historical facts. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to qualify that just a little bit before we move on. This is getting into the weeds, but as I said, there, Jesus uses agapao, Peter, phileo, the first two times, and then the third time, Jesus says phileo, and Peter says phileo. And uh, one argument that, that makes sense to me is that what John is doing here is he's showing, that, that, that he's resolving the tension. So there's tension in the first two questions just by virtue of the, those two different words. Not that they mean anything significantly different, but there, there is a difference uh, visually. And if you're hearing this read in the Greek, and then that final one, the, the, the dissonance is, is sort of resolved, um, which maybe is, um, points us to that resolution with, between Jesus and Peter and his restoration. Okay, so there may be, maybe something along those lines could be going on. When our, in our remaining time, let's, let's, let's look in turn at Christ's questions, Peter's responses, and then Christ's commands. Peter, as we've, we've said, had denied Jesus three times, and so he, Jesus asked him three times whether he loved Jesus. What's interesting about the, these three questions is the third one, where Peter is grieved. Why is he grieved? Well, no doubt it brought to mind his threefold denial. And we might ask, well, does, is that cruel of Jesus to do that? It, it, it might seem cruel for Jesus to ask Peter this same question three times. You know, is Jesus rubbing it in? You know, do you really, really, really? Are you sure? Because you thought it before. You know, is that, is that the tack Jesus is taking here? But no, what he's doing is, is the opposite of cruel. It would have been cruel for Jesus not to address the matter head on, to let it go on festering in Peter, so that throughout his life, he had this inner turmoil, wondering if he was inferior or maybe unworthy for pastoral ministry, even though he had repented and bitter tears. The kind and merciful thing for Jesus to do was, in fact, to publicly restore Peter to office so that Peter and the others would know that the past is the past, that Peter's threefold sin had been fully and freely forgiven, and that Peter was still 
a minister of the good news, the gospel, commissioned to feed and care for Christ's sheep. The purpose of public confession of sin is public restoration, not humiliation, but restoration. God is not cruel in calling all of us to, to public confession at times. It's, it's true that the experience of confession is uncomfortable, maybe painful, but the purpose of an open confession is to end the matter so that we can pick up and go on with our Lord in his service. If there's a sin that you need to confess openly to a friend, maybe you've confessed it to God, maybe you haven't, you start there, you confess it to God, but maybe the next step would be to go to that friend or to your family that you've sinned against, or, or perhaps to your church family. If so, don't run from the special grace that Jesus offers and gives to those who humble themselves before God and before the people of God in this kind of way. And if you have opportunity to declare the forgiveness that God gives to another, to assure them, then embrace that opportunity as well. Embrace the chance to be to take part in God's restoration of a sinner. Peter had learned a lot about himself, no doubt, in the, in the past few weeks. He had fallen, but his faith had not ultimately failed. Jesus had said to Peter, he'd given him this promise, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded, think about how strong this is, Satan demanded to have you. Can you imagine that interaction? that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you have repented, strengthen your brothers. So he, he already told him that this was going to happen. You're going you're gonna to fall, and you're going to be restored, and you're going to go out and take care of the sheep. You're going to go strengthen the brethren. Now that Peter is restored, he's ready to strengthen his brothers. He's ready to go feed the sheep. He's ready to minister to the people of God and to share with them, to proclaim to them the same grace that he has experienced, he has received. And he knows it a million, a billion times better now than he did just a month earlier. And so, three times, Peter affirms his love for Christ. And each time he responds, he appeals to Christ's knowledge. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Now, the old Peter might have said something more like, I know my own heart. And I swear. I promise. I love you. I know myself. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Even if all fall away on account of you, 
I know that I will never, I know that I never will. I know myself well. I love you so much that I will lay down my life for you. Peter had given just this kind of self-assured response before. And he had been dead wrong each time. Those were, those were quotes I was pulling from Peter's mouth. He now knew that he had no reason for confidence in his flesh, including his self-knowledge. That's not the starting point for Peter anymore. Peter's assurance of salvation now rested in Christ, in Christ's knowledge of him, warts and all, and all. The new Peter's assurance, his blessed assurance that he belonged to Jesus, that Jesus is his and he is Jesus's. It rested in Christ. It rested in the object of his faith. Not in himself. Now, we might. Why, though, would Peter appeal to Christ's knowledge? How, how could Peter be encouraged? Um, I mean, that you know all things. That means you know everything about me. How is that all that encouraging? You know, when you think about that, is that what you want to say to God? <laughs> you know everything. Uh, first thing that might come to your mind is, ouch, uh, that's not good. You know, wasn't Peter aware that when he peered into Peter's soul, he saw all of his wickedness, his weaknesses, past and future sins even? Yes, Peter was a sinner, but Peter knew in a way he didn't before that not only that he was a sinner, but that he was a forgiven he was also a forgiven sinner. And Peter had recently come to know this in a fresh and transforming way. Peter was still conscious of his sin. But he also knew that Jesus can look in his absolute comprehensive knowledge. He can look beyond Peter's sin, beyond those three denials, to a heart. And here's the key. To a heart that truly loves Jesus because it's a heart that Jesus has made. That's the key. Peter used to think that Jesus loved Peter, perhaps because Peter loves Jesus. But now Peter realizes that he loves Jesus only because Jesus first loved him. And he knows that love very, very well, very intimately. Jesus' love comes first. That's the gospel. Peter's love for Christ flows out of Christ's love for Peter. Peter's identity now at this point is rooted, especially after this interaction, it's rooted in Christ's affectionate knowledge of Peter, a knowledge knowledge, covenant knowledge, a knowledge that's filled with love, foreknowledge. It's, it's a knowledge that existed before the foundations of the world. If you're a Christian, God's comprehensive knowledge of you 
can be a source of joy, as it was for Peter, a source of, a, of assurance. Boyce points out two reasons for this. The first reason is that Jesus knows the worst about you, and he has declared his love for you anyway. If the Lord, if, if the Lord Jesus didn't know all things, if, if there were things he was, he was still learning, you might have reason to fear, you certainly would have reason to fear, that someday something evil in you would spring up and surprise God and then kill his affection for you. Not very comforting to think that God doesn't know everything, including everything about you. And on such a day when God finally, when he finally found out the worst about you, you might say, look at this horrible sinner. Man, I didn't know all this was in there. I, you know, I'm not quite ready to forgive that. Um, I, I would have needed to know about that first. I don't want to have anything to do with this terrible sinner. And sometimes that's, if we're not careful, that's the God that we create in our own image. A God who might be more like us than true God. So if Jesus didn't know everything, including everything about you, that could happen. You might even expect it to happen. But he does know all things. He even knows the worst. The worst thing in the past, the worst thing in the future, the worst about you right now. And he loves you anyway. He extends his grace to you. Romans 5.8 is that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were at enmity with God, Christ died for you. The second reason that uh, God's comprehensive knowledge can be a source of joy is that since Jesus knows everything about you, he also knows the best things about you. Because he's the one that put them there. He's the one that created them. It's his handiwork. And he knows it entirely. Now the disciples, they might have been they might have been surprised when Peter defected. It might have caused them to wonder whether Peter was a false believer, a false disciple. Maybe Peter is destined to apostatize the way Judas did. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew Judas's heart, and Jesus, Jesus knew Peter's heart, because Jesus is the one who gave him his new heart. He's the one who remade Peter's heart. He's the one who gave Peter the new birth. Jesus knew Peter's love. He saw his love in his face because Jesus knew his love for Peter. Jesus knew Peter's love because he knew his own love for Peter. And now Peter has come to understand that. Boyce says, in conclusion of that point, never say 
I can do it, Lord. I know I can. I know my heart. Say rather, Lord, you know what is there. You put it there. You know what love I have for you. Take it and make it into something that will abound to your glory. End quote. The threefold command uh, that Christ gives to Peter is as gracious as the threefold question. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus didn't tell Peter, okay, you're forgiven, but you can't, you can't really do what I originally called you to do as a leader in my church. Uh, now, um, that actually would have been reasonable. We, we wouldn't blame Jesus if he had said something like that. After all, it is possible for a man to disqualify himself from the kind of pastoral ministry that Peter had. And so for Jesus to tenderly reinstate Peter in this way is the height of graciousness. Three years earlier, Jesus had called and commissioned Peter to catch people make you a fisher of people, men. Now Jesus is calling and commissioning Peter to shepherd those people and to feed them God's word. The prerequisite for Christian service, not just for apostolic ministry or pastoral ministry, but for all forms of Christian service, the prerequisite, prerequisite isn't... Uh, you know, the absence of major sins in your history. You don't have to be particularly smart. You don't have to have a passion and a plan for bringing in the kingdom of God. You certainly don't have to be morally and spiritually perfect. There, there, there's one fundamental prerequisite for Christian service. And this applies to every person here. Every one of you is in Christian service. There's only one prerequisite for faithful service in Christ's kingdom. And it's this. That you have a true and abiding love for your Savior. Not a flawless love, but a true, persevering, abiding love for the one who saved you. So do you love Jesus more than anything? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Then serve his sheep. Love his lambs. Jesus has forgiven you. He's restored you to fellowship with God. He prays for you. He keeps Satan from sifting you like wheat. Now go and encourage the brethren. Encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, this week, pick one person. Pick one way that you can build up a brother or a sister in the Lord. So, so, so pick a person in our body 
outside our body. Pick a believer and think of one way to love them, to encourage them, to serve them. It could be helping them with, with something that they need help with. It could be simply by giving them an encouraging word, a call, a note, a text, handwritten note, something like that. Scripture. Let them know you've been praying. Pray for them first and then let them know which scripture you prayed through for them. True love for the Lord is not limited to private, mystical experiences in your prayer closet. Love for Christ cares for others. It shows up in space and time. It, it manifests itself in practical and dateable ways. When you love Christ, you will find yourself loving his sheep, the other sheep, in tangible ways. I'll close with 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Oh God, help us know your love and to practice that same love toward others, toward you first and toward others. Inspire us to do that. Inform us in ways, practical, concrete ways to do it, even this Sunday, as we learn to receive and then give Christian love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.